If you don't change the parts of the process that are inequitable inherently, it doesn't matter how many resources these DBEs have. It doesn't matter how great they are. It's built into the institution. And we do this a lot. We, we think that we are doing the best thing to move us forward, but it's actually making things worse. Welcome. You're listening to Illogical by Truth. This podcast decodes the language, the decisions, and the hidden areas of local power that often seems illogical to residents. The goal of this podcast is to empower people to engage locally and to understand how significant it is to be aware and active at the local level. Once local government is logical, it will become meaningful and provide the benefits that allow for people to live a thriving life. So again, I'm Terrence Roof, and on this show today, we have Dr. Christine Williams. I am looking forward to our podcast recording um, where we shed light into local contracting, DBEs, and why it is important for empowering local civic engagement. We will connect this conversation to Mayor Maynard Jackson of Atlanta and the explosion of minority underrepresented wealth. Um, and Christine, thanks for being here and welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. So I want to first give the audience a glimpse of who you are. So how did you end up in the lane in which you're looking at local contracting and, 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 and community engagement? Like, how did you land here? Yeah, so it's one of chaos. I am a recovering college professor um, who landed in local government. And so that was my first exposure to public procurement. I saw it on the side of the government looking for vendors. And uh, it was puzzling to me then. There was no training, so you just learn to navigate it as you go through it. And so I, I didn't realize um, my interest in it at the time, but it just kind of sat in the back of my mind. Uh, several years later, I opened up my own consulting firm and as a woman-owned business was going for government contracts and was really hitting a lot of obstacles. And so I started talking to other businesses like mine, those owned by women and minorities and veterans and, you know, ones that are really small, uh, saying, you know, what am I doing wrong and what's this landscape and, and how, how do I navigate this? And that's when I really started to learn about the true inequities in the system and how it's built, right? Um, I, you know, I got also great mentoring on how to, to, you know, learn to move through that, but I really learned uh, how rigged the system is, and uh, I wanted to do something about it. Now, now help us understand the term procurement. Right? Now, 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 most people know that their local government handles certain duties for residents, mm -hmm. but they don't often know the world that sits behind that production. Right. So how does, help us understand that term, help us understand the vendor term. Like, what does that world look like behind the scenes? Like, if we go underneath the curtains or behind the curtains, what does that look like? 
Yeah, so procurement is the fancy way of saying the government buys goods and services. Right? So they have to buy office supplies. They have to, um, you know, uh, contract folks to come in and clean the buildings and, um, you know, uh, rehab a, a portion of a building or paint a room or, or uh, bring in planner, city planners and community engagement people like what I do. And so procurement is the process that they use to find their vendors, their contractors, the people who do the work. Um, the one that, you know, uh, procurement that, that most people are familiar with, um, though they may not know it in those terms, is like construction, right? The city hires construction companies to build, um, you know, their buildings throughout um, the city. So it's really just a fancy way of saying government buys goods and services from people uh, through a contracting process. Now, I went to undergrad in Atlanta. And when I went to Atlanta, I realized that there was a wealth class that was very diverse. And it was it was so normalized that it wasn't talked about. It was just this group um, was a diverse group that has access to resources well. Um, and what I realized is they also had access to contracts. And I didn't know the story at the time. I just thought that Atlanta had a unique picture of very diverse vendors for local contracting. What is the history around the inequities in local contracting? Why would Atlanta look special to some people? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Atlanta is what is um, a really interesting um, use case because it's one of the few places that really has had concerted effort and long-standing concerted effort to ensure that uh, disadvantaged business enterprises, what we'll call DBEs, right? So uh, typically this cover, it's an umbrella term that covers minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, in some places also veteran-owned businesses. Atlanta is special in um, its history in really focusing on not just having DBE contracting goals, but having measures to reach those goals, and then accountability structures. And that is what most places in the United States, even today, after, you know, over 40 years of studies, so we have these things called disparity studies, and they look at um, what types of businesses are available in the market, and then the percentages of those businesses that are getting government contracts, right? Um, and what they're missing is we're showing over 40 years of disparities, which means minorities and women in general are not getting their share of government contracts based on their availability in the market. But instead of being like Atlanta, where there were concerted efforts, there are a few places that are doing it now. But most just say, okay, well, our reaction is going to be set our goal higher and um, say we're going to try harder and maybe we'll hire a couple of DEI staff um, that are black and brown um, or women 
and and you know sort of take this token tokenism approach there um, without any real resources to go where the true problems lie in the system uh, and without accountability structures when people don't do what they're supposed to be doing to meet those goals so I remember hearing the story around uh, Mayor Maynard Jackson. I remember um, hearing that he propped up a campaign around securing a certain percentage of black and brown and women con- subcontracting to the, to the city. And this was local. Most people are t- thinking about federal contracts or military contracts. Most people are thinking in that lane when you're talking about government contracts. But we're talking about a mayor of a city who is promising a part of his campaign to allocate certain contracts. Why is that important? Like, why don't we see more mayors in that lane? You know, because it, that, that seems something that's in local control, mm-hmm. has local impact, local dollars filtered through. Mm-hmm. It supports small business. Yep. It increases. I mean, it, it, it seems like it's a win, win, win. <laughs> Across so many buckets. Except for the large <laughs> firms, mm. right, who don't necessarily want to give any share of the pie mm. to these um, smaller businesses, these DBE businesses. And, you know, I mean, we can get into the relationships between uh, these larger companies and people who are in positions of mm. power. There's obviously some of that. A, a big issue, too, is that government agencies have hemorrhaged staff. And so, you know, we know that one of the biggest areas to get cut during those times um, are the areas focused on equity. And so right now, if we're turning to government agencies and leaders uh, to say, hey, you you really got to step up your game and we got to change the way we approach getting more diverse vendors and we need accountability structures. Even if they had the best of intentions to do it, they often don't have the resources. Mm. They don't have the time, the staff. Uh, quite frankly, I think there's still so much misconception on how to actually address the issue. So even if they're trying really hard and they do put policies in place these policies have proven ineffective and i think just they don't know how to move forward can can you can you give us a sample of a policy that a local government will put in place to try to address it but it still proves and if like do you have like a yeah it's my favorite because i hate it the most (laughs) um and so it drives so much of my work Um, You know, well, there's really there's two that are very, very common that just simply don't work. The first is just stating a goal. Right. So we want 12 percent or 4 percent or whatever the percentage is of our government contracts to go to um, disadvantaged businesses, women owned businesses, minority, however they word this. Stating a goal is not the same as working toward a goal and meeting a goal, right? And so what you'll you'll sometimes see is that when they fail to meet their goal one year, they just increase their goal. Like they go from a whisper to a shout, like that's going to miraculously lead to an outcome. And, and of course, that doesn't work because if you don't give 
people, these small businesses, the resources they need to be successful, if you don't change the parts of the process that are inequitable inherently, it doesn't matter how many resources these DBEs have. It doesn't matter how great they are. It's built into the institution, right? So that's one way um, the, the, or one tactic. The other is something that's called good faith effort. And I often joke, though it's not actually funny and it's very true, it's something that keeps me up at night because these jurisdictions have said, well, you know, the best way to bring in DBEs is to put some pressure on large firms to work with them, right, as subcontractors. So the, the large firm will subcontract part of the contract. That's where these goals come in. Well, because large contractors say, well, DBEs don't exist or they're not qualified or they don't have enough past performance or we can't find them or whatever, they can get around these goal requirements by filling out um, what's called good faith paperwork. And every jurisdiction, every municipality, et cetera, they have their own rules of what that means, but you can get around it. So let's say a, a council or a commission, a, a, a county or a city says, we want to um, redo this park. Mm-hmm. And in order to redo this park, we want to partner with a firm that's ready to take on that level of task, and we want to make a requirement for them to subcontract to, I don't know, um, a women-owned business or a black or brown-owned uh, business, and that be a part of the stipulation to successfully get this contract. That major firm that takes on this contract returns and says, we can't, we can't find it. They, mm-hmm. they, they don't exist um, um, and so after saying that, they have to prove in a good faith effort that that, that this doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But that proof is as simple as in some places, and especially in places here in, in North Carolina, uh, that quote unquote proof is they sent a cold email to everybody on the DBE vendor list and then they can say we never responded. And we may have responded. I respond to every one of those emails <laughs> I get. I call them, wow. you know, and, and so, you know, it's very common for them to just send those emails because they legally have to do it, right? And even if you call them back, um, this actually happened a couple months ago. I see the email as it comes in and I call the firm immediately. And I was like, yeah, I would actually love to work on this project. I've been eyeing it. They said, oh, we already turned in the proposal. You emailed me 20 minutes ago. (laughs) What do you mean you turned in the proposal? Oh, this is good faith effort. And so they make it, and and this is a pretty universal practice, right, in this space, is they're kind of leaning on these large firms to do the right thing. Well, from an economic perspective, it's not in their best interest to do the right thing, first and foremost. And what's, what's more heartbreaking and frustrating, and this is the thing that keeps me up at night, right, is that, you know, and we do this a lot, we, we think that we are doing the best thing to move us forward, but it's actually making things worse, right? So what good faith efforts 
mixed with these DBE goals has done is actually opened up uh, predatory behavior. So, you know, we're told as small businesses that the number one way to get government contracts for, for people like us, for businesses like ours, is to get certified. So you jump through those hoops, um, which we can definitely talk about if you want to, but woo, it is, it's a beast, right? So you do all that. And that's supposed to be the panacea. That's supposed to be what gets you there. That's only the first step. But then what happens is you um, may never hear from anybody, right? It's like you're relying on these large firms to reach out um, and actually follow up. Some firms do, right? They, they do partner with small businesses, but it is very common that they'll put a black or brown person or a woman on their proposal team to try to get the government contract simply to say, look, we have this this person you asked for, um, and then we don't see the work, or we only see a very small fraction of the work because they steal a lot of the scope. So they would even place an individual on the on the proposed document that that actually wins the contract. Correct. And then once the contract is awarded, they no longer use the person that's listed. There are people. There are people um, across the country that I've interviewed that have been on winning teams that have never been called to do the work. Um, <laughs> there have been people who have been put on proposals that didn't even know they were put on those proposals. <laughs> um, there are people who have had their s scope stolen wow. or large portions, right? Wow. So you do all this work uh, with the guarantee you're gonna get you know, 15% of the contract and you get two, wow. right? Um, or, you know, they, they do the work. If you're lucky enough to actually get the work with the prime, um, they're waiting 90, 120, 200 days. Wow. We have somebody in the amalgamation right now who's been waiting over a year wow. to get paid by a prime that's a very large company. And they're a micro business. And it is not uncommon for businesses to actually shut down because they're not getting their pay. And so what we, what we think we've done in the government space is said, okay, we're putting some pressure, we have goals, we're having these large firms jump through hoops, we're encouraging DBEs to get certified. And it's like, oh no, you've just created a space where is really not beneficial for a lot of people, especially in the state and local space, which is where a lot of micros uh, or very, very small businesses owned by women, minorities, and veterans, um, you know, really want to do business and build up their capabilities, uh, but they're shut out of those processes. Now, now I want to rewind because I want to, I want to share why this is important, right? <laughs> I want to, yes. I want to, yes. I want to go because. Because most people are like, okay, I see, you know, people are not getting contracts. And, you know, um, I see disparities in homes, right? We talk about the the history of homes have well been documented around race and other elements that, that prevent people from having homes. Mm. And people will talk about the economic benefit of having a home and owning a home and how it can really create benefits in the future, not just for the adults, but for the children. Um, we talk about education, um, going to get your PhD or master's or bachelor's, how that can propel a family forward economically. 
But I remember when we met uh, a few months ago, you shared how significant this local contracting can be. Mm-hmm. More significant than the home oh, and, yeah. and the degree. So yes. can you please share why this is even a passion? Like why, yes, yes. Why, and why we need to be having yes. this conversation about yes. something that most people find yes. boring? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, it's not just about individual businesses being successful. That is important, right? We talk a lot about we want to support small businesses. We want to support small businesses owned by the most vulnerable populations. And that's critical. That's part of the reason we're, we're doing what we're doing, um, you know, through the amalgamation and having these conversations. But government contracting at the state, the local, and the federal level is the number one way to close wealth gaps. The U.S. government in general at all levels, so you combine all government agencies, they're the number one buyer of goods and services in the world. So the government, if you combine all levels, is the largest consumer yes. of services. And most people don't even know that this contracting network exists or how to enter. Correct. <laughs> or if they do know about it, they know that they're at a disadvantage. Mm. And that getting into, so yes, you have uh, groups of people who have no clue that this exists as an option. You have another group of people who knows that it exists, but they don't know how to navigate it because it's incredibly confusing. Then you have another group of people who know very well that it exists, but are um, also aware that they stand you know, fewer chances. And to to get government contracts requires a lot of unpaid labor because you don't just like show up at the government agency and like do this cool presentation and say, hey, buy our product, right? You don't set up like a store and have government agents come in or government officials come in and see what you sell. You have to draft specific proposals to respond to their calls. Like they say, hey, we need a new park or we need a new uh, survey writer or we need a new building, whatever it is. And then you you put on all this work to make this pretty proposal. Sometimes you got to have seven professionally printed copies and you're paying all that. That's your work, right? As a small business, you're most likely doing that um, yourself. That's not, you know, you don't have full-time staff to do this like large firms do. Uh, you, you very rarely recoup those costs. In fact, um, you can't build that cost into, into your fee structure. And so it's, it's multiple layers that keep people from entering this. Um, and, you know, the people who know it incredibly well also then know not only do we know we have these disparities, but we're doing very little about it other than conducting studies and going, oh, look, uh, there's disparities again, like there have been for over 40 years since we started documenting this. Huh. And so there, it's different layers that keep people excluded from this. When Harvard School of Government is saying, this is the number one way to address specifically racial wealth disparities in the United States. And so one of my goals is really to force the conversation of 
are we serious about reaching equity? If we're not, then let's just admit that, right? And then have that different conversation. But if we really want to address that, this is an important way. And then you think about the effects on local economy, or you think about the loss of talent in specific places. The places where it's very difficult to do business, North Carolina is one of those for smalls and especially DBEs. Those folks may still live here, but they're taking their talents to other cities. They're building those cities up. They're taking their creativity there, right? And and we're losing talent because we're not investing and, and we're not doing what we need to do to change the institutional roots of the problem. So, so um, one, you shared so much there. I wanna, I wanna um, just do a very quick, just summary of what the process is. So if, I'm, if I have an idea or if I have a skill set, I have a talent and I, I wanna move it into a, a business and I go to whatever uh, platform to, I go to the, to the state and I become a, a, a LCC or LLC, I'm sorry, um, and or whatever I become to now enter into this vendor contracting pool. I'm told I have to get certified, so then I go through a series of trainings, right? And then after that training, what happens once I start my business, I get my LLC, I get my corporation papers, I get all that stuff, I move to um, certification. Mm -hmm. That's a cost. Starting the business is a cost because you right. have to pay to get certified. Yep. Getting certified is a cost. So let's say I, I, I tackle that wave. Yep. Yep. What happens after that? Where does where where would a vendor see an opportunity or a job? And and like, like so it depends, right? <laughs> so and if it's okay, I want to back up one yeah, no step. Problem. So yeah. you start your business. What's interesting is that there's like what I call fake certification agencies. Those are the ones that are going to charge you. Getting certified doesn't cost you money usually, but it costs you a lot of time. A lot of time. And I'm telling you, they want everything but a urine sample. <laughs> and I'm I please don't yeah, 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 get yeah, any yeah, ideas yeah, from this, yeah, right? Yeah. But it that process depends on where you live. Uh, Every cities have their own um, certification processes, states, the federal is different. So even just navigating that part is incredibly difficult. And so, um, for example, I am um, I'm a woman-owned business in North Carolina, uh, but I'm not an, a woman-owned business anywhere else. Okay. The, the other part is you don't have to get certified, but any of the recognition that you're minority-owned or women-owned doesn't apply to you. So if you want that label, you've got to go through that process. Big firms don't have to go through any sort of hoops um, in that way. So there's already this, this burden put on the most vulnerable businesses to enter a competition that's rigged, right? And so you're already walking into something that is difficult. So federal opportunities, for example, are, are easier to find because they have a centralized database. But a lot of small businesses, especially out the gate, they're not trying to go federal, right? They want to start. They want to start small. They want to start local. They want to help their own communities and build up capacity, etc. There are no 
centralized databases of state and local opportunities. So certain places use certain platforms. Some have a, a website. There's a county that we happen to be located in right now um, that puts all of them on a website that is not updated, uh, difficult to filter, difficult to search. You know, often the attitude with that is, well, if you want to do business with us bad enough, you're going to go dig in and find it. Well, we're doing a lot of free labor already, right? It shouldn't be that difficult. Others use um, certain platforms. So State of North Carolina has a purchasing system, but you're not required to use it. So these opportunities at the state and local levels across the country can be anywhere. So in order to get access, if you want easy access, you can uh, buy a software, what's called a bid aggregator. So they basically scrape all these opportunities on the internet and put them in one place. Uh, for the average business, you're looking at between uh, 11 and $30,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So we're asking small businesses to invest 11 to $30,000 a year, again, to enter into a competition they know is rigged against them. Mm-hmm. Right, And they know from experience, the experience of their networks, and they know from all of the research that shows, by and large, across the country, across industries, and across levels of government, they're at a disadvantage. You know what's fascinating to me is I spent my I spent so many years in education, and, and education was sort of prompted up and, and sort of highlighted as the way to reduce the wealth gap. I've spent some time in um, affordable housing conversations. In those conversations, if you just give somebody a home ownership, it would, you know, change that conversation. And I promise you, it's so hard to come by conversations around contracting. Mm-hmm. And when the, when there is a conversation around contracting, normally we're talking about the federal or the military. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at all the projects that exist at the local level, county, city, uh, even school board, if you want to include that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where is all of that money going? <laughs> when so many people only see the outcome of the final product and they don't know that process you just walked us through. Now, most people who are aware, they're doing their work, they, they do see the disparities, and they care, but they, they're moving on with their life. You paused <laughs> and said, I want to do something about this. <laughs> I do think that we need to stop celebrating historical moments where wealth was concentrated in certain communities. And I, I want to talk about like Black, Black Wall Street and these other areas where in my community is celebrated. Mm-hmm. We talk about Black Wall Street. We talk about um, industry leaders who are black and brown. I, I just seen a documentary where the console where you're able to use different video games mm-hmm. was a black engineer. Mm-hmm. You never hear about him. You never hear anything. So we, we celebrate history quite often. But you said, okay, enough with history. We want to do something right now. Mm-hmm. We can have a thriving community, have access to contracting and, and tools to reduce the wealth gap right now. Yes, We don't have to wait until history. And you created the amalgamation. Please give us a just a, a, a snapshot of what it looks like to 
to have a solution and what is that solution um, that you're proposing through your organization and how does it work? Yeah. So, you know, we, we mentioned real estate, yeah. right? We mentioned education and we, we are told, go get the PhD, yeah. go get the college degree, right? Buy a house. Yes, those things can be important, except they don't lead to equity unless someone is willing to hire you and promote you and give you fair opportunities and value your home at what it should be valued, right? And so the same principle is here. Um, and it's, it's really the foundation of the model that I built for the amalgamation. So as I was thinking through and getting frustrated <laughs> with the way things are, you know, I really set, stepped back and I used um, my background as a PhD sociologist and said, how are all these things related? Um, what is What are the data uh, telling us? Where have we gone wrong? And the number one factor that I saw, uh, the, the pattern across all of these efforts was that we really expect to put pressure at the top and for these benefits to trickle down. And if you have ever studied anything that has <laughs> to do with equity, you know that's not how it happens. It's not, it's not just granted because all of a sudden people want to be kind. It is always demanded from the grassroots. And so that part became really forefront of what I wanted to do. So I wanted to, before doing anything else, really create a, a network, an ecosystem, a supportive community of disadvantaged business owners from across the country. Because right now you get certified, you get thrown on a spreadsheet, it's uploaded somewhere on the internet, and then you get the cold emails from the big firms, right? And hope somebody actually partners with you. I thought worst case scenario is that we can come together and mentor one another, have conversations, um, that are real and relevant for what we experience in this space. So that was that was part of it. And then that other part of, you know, it's great that we're gonna we're gonna work together, but we also need to demand the changes in the process that can lead to success. I can write the best proposal in the world, but if the system is still structured to say, oh well, we can't hire anybody new. Right. And we may not like this firm, but they're, you know, it's a lower risk and, and you know, whatever, then the results don't change. Right. So we created um, or I created the amalgamation with three basic goals. The first, create a community, right, where we can be honest, we can expand our networks. Um, that is the most consistent problem for DBEs is their networks are small. Wow. So. I can, you know, especially, you know, thanks to technology, yeah. in 2023, I can unite us pretty easily in a community <laughs> across the country, right? Uh -huh. So that was bucket one. The second thing I wanted to do was relying on the government for um, as little or nothing um, as we could provide these DBEs with the same resources that large firms have so that we can be more competitive. Right. So the number one predictor of getting a government contract is whether or not you have a relationship with that that yeah. agency. Well, there are people who do that for a living for these large firms. We don't have that. 
So, and a lot of us don't even know what that involves, right? Some of, I, I did a, a, a survey of DBEs and they thought that was illegal. Uh, and so it's like, no, 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 that's actually what we need to be doing. Um, we don't have full-time proposal writers, graphic designers, right? We're building stuff in Canva and hoping for the best, right? And you're not as competitive. So what we've done in, in the second, um, what I call the second bucket, is we are giving affordable resources to make us competitive. So that bid aggregator I mentioned yes, before, yes, uh, our members get state and local bids updated daily um, at way less than $11,000 a year per firm, right? Um, and um, this is my first public announcement for this, so I'm happy to share it with you. We just signed um, a, a deal with a consortium of over 200 proposal experts, people who do, they win government contracts for a living by writing good proposals. Um, these 200 consultants have agreed to give our members extremely discounted rates so that they can actually afford the help they need to get these proposals there. And then bucket three, and so we all do, we, we have to do all three of these things together, right? The third then is to be vocal and put pressure uh, on government agencies to really change their, their contracting. Um, some of it is a very simple change. Some of it is going to be <laughs> a little bit more, um, you know, uh, long term and controversial. But we know what works from these other industries that have had to tackle the same issue. Right. But because government contracting is, um, you know, not talked about as much, we wanted to change that. It's now time. Um, and like I said, it could be that, you know, these government agencies say, you know what, we're just kind of we're just kind of <laughs> saying we care. We don't really care. Right? But we've gotten a great reception from municipalities we're working with. Uh, there are some folks out there that really want to see DBE shine. You know, it's. Uh What's amazing to me is that we're 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 so infatuated with what will impact our lives at the national level, and you're talking about something that's practical that you can you know sort of plug into locally, a network that you can plug into from your office into a national network mm -hmm. of people who have similar shared stories. How can someone start the journey of plugging into your network and becoming a part of the amalgamation. What's that process look like? Or do they have to fill out an application? Do, you know, because I can, I can understand a listener saying, this is too much. It seems like a lot for me. How do I, like, how do I start? Because if we're talking about wealth disparities and we're talking about sort of uh, access to contracting disparities, you're talking about historical sort of buildup of denials. And so it's going to be uh, a lot for someone that's, that lives in that history right. to say, I'm, I'm that person that's going to come and get this contract. What is the door for them to enter in yeah. to the amalgamation and, and learn and become a part of this process? Yeah. So uh, the first thing that I always tell people to do is, is scope out our website. It's the-amalgamation.com. Uh, and you'll see what we're about. Uh, because, you know, one of the battles, and, and I knew this going in, one of the battles that I face in this space uh, is that there's going to be a lot of hesitance, even if people want what we're doing and they believe in the mission, 
this has been a very um, predatory space, right? And in, and then here comes me, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, like, let's do it. We can, you know, we can change the system together. Let's go. Um, and so there are some people who are like, ah, I'm going to hold out until you can, you know, show me that this works. Um, which is also understandable, right? But the folks who have joined uh, so far, it's it's a pretty simple process. So every business uh, fills out a basic application. It's like a one-page Google form, so I know who you are. Uh, and then everybody has to meet with me. So I make sure that it's not just, okay, we're helping DBEs. It is we're helping DBEs that are legitimate, right? They're not fake DBEs, uh, which does happen. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, my wife owns the company and they really don't, right? Um, and and we're really recruiting people who are um, brand new that don't even know if they want to do government contracting. They're curious, what is this like? All the way up to people who have been doing this for 20, 30 years, right? Which really gives us that ability to do the mentor um, and protege model, right? That's so critical. So it's really as simple as, you know, um, for most people, it's they have a 30 minute conversation with me. I explain what we're doing and they're like, yeah, okay, what's the fee, right? And if I can afford it, I'm in. And, you know, right now to keep it focused and to make sure that we can support businesses to the best of our ability um, as we grow, we work uh, with professional service providers that are the most vulnerable. So we work with, um, for our definition of DBE, it is minority-owned, women-owned, veteran-owned, um, and LGBTQ community-owned. Um, even though that's not recognized by the federal government, that's part of our advocacy. Um, and we're working on that um, here in North Carolina uh, with a local group called Harmony. You have to be eligible. You don't have to yet be certified. We can actually help you navigate that process too. Um, and right now we are keeping it to um, most of our members have 25 or fewer employees. In fact, most of our members have five or fewer. We are really identifying the most vulnerable uh, in the space to show the power of the collective. And for those of you who are listening, this whole podcast is designed to make things that are just nonsense. It doesn't make sense at all. Make sense. And I appreciate uh, Christine coming on and, and allowing us to see this contracting process, which most people have never seen before. <laughs> they probably never met someone who was in that in that community, but they have a skill set where they're building and creating in their house <laughs> and they're serving their neighborhood, but a city could benefit from them broadening that service. And so I just appreciate uh, Kristen just allowing us to see how clear this picture can be if you join a community. And so the amalgamation um, is a community that you'll be able to plug into no matter where you are in the country um, and receive support. And what's fascinating about this is that the, this is the number one tool to close the wealth gap. And I hear so much about people losing their homes at this moment. The cost of rent has gone up. The, the people are losing jobs in particular fields. 
Um, people are, are um, being pushed further away from jobs that they are making minimum amount, middle class. Um, we've seen an increase in unhoused population across the country. Um, people are looking for a way to own their future again. And I see that this conversation can help you provide clarity in that space. So thank you again, uh, Christian, for coming and, Thanks for having and me. providing clarity. Um, I just appreciate that you have committed your life to this work. Um, if you are speaking to someone who's listening, what are some final words that you give to that person that's like, oh, this is intriguing? You know, uh, and, and they, they sort of perked up when you were talking. What's some last words that you could share with them? I think a couple things. Just because it's confusing and daunting doesn't mean that you can't navigate it. Um, and you now have a community who is here to 100% support. Uh, just because it's tough to change the system doesn't mean that we can't. If I, if I can share a victory um, yes, please. that shows the power of collective, I, I mentioned earlier some of the predatory behavior. So I got a call from a large company that said, uh, Chris, and we need some disadvantaged business enterprises on this proposal because it's a requirement. Do you have a team? And I said, I actually do have a team. Wow. They said, okay, but we're moving fast. So you, you got to like put them together and get this stuff written in three days. So I pulled the team together, right? We, we, we spent hours on this proposal and then they stopped responding. And so finally, you know, I keep calling the office because I want an explanation. And they said, oh, you know what? Sorry, Kristen, we, we, uh, we went with another DBE. Because in this space, we're treated as if we're just interchangeable, mm, you know, tokens or markers. So and so, you know, I had a very honest conversation with her. And then I sent her an invoice yeah. for our time. Yeah. And I said, I understand that you're not going to put us on that proposal, but we did our portion of this. Now, anybody listening, <laughs> I will tell you, I have never heard of someone d paying uh, someone for their portion of a proposal. It's incredibly rare. You know, the people I told that I sent an invoice, they laughed. They said, you are, they're never <laughs> going to pay it. They don't ha legally have to pay it. Uh, they're never like, just, you know, and I said, well, I understand the risk, but I'm also proving a point. Wow. We are here That's to good. change business. And you know what they did? They paid that invoice wow. because I'd like to think they want to do the right thing. But there's also that power in the collective to say, you're not just screwing over one company when you're doing this. Now you're getting this reputation among DBEs. Mm. So what are they going to do the next time they need a DBE when we're all talking going, oh, yeah, wow. right? And so to me, that proves that we can move this if we work together, but we need to be working together. I, I, I want to make sure that the listeners have a chance to connect with you. Yeah. So what are ways in which they can find you in this virtual digital world? How can they find you? So I am a LinkedIn um, lover. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I hate to admit it. I am. I am um, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, uh, N as in Nicole Williams. 
I think there may be a PhD in my title. You'll see me, I'm smiling all big, <laughs> like a geek in my LinkedIn. Um, you can also get in touch with me through uh, the Amalgamations website, the-amalgamation.com. Um, and anybody who even just wants to, to have a conversation, I. I will talk to anyone about government contracting, whether it's, you know, I'm interested in it and I don't get it, I'm frustrated with it, right? Um, what have you been talking about? Why is it so important? So I would love to have this conversation with anyone, you know, who's interested. So I just want to say thank you, Kristen, for coming out and sharing about local contracting. I want you to know um, there was uh, something called Freedom Schools before, and they would teach about you know, civic engagement, but they also would teach um, about skill sets that you need to get a job or to create a business. Um, and so she's created her own Freedom School uh, where people are able to build from their hands and their minds a business that's respected locally. And again, this podcast is about local government. We're talking about you taking your skill set and that skill set is building wealth in your community and building the trust, the history, the legacy, the sustainability of your neighborhood. And so thank you again for coming today. I want you to uh, just know that you taking the time out today sharing your knowledge and thoughts and opinions on matters like local contracting and local civic engagement means the world. Um, thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Illogical by Truth podcast. Uh, this episode was edited and produced by Airfluence and I am Terrence Roof and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you. <laughs>